0: Maybe we have these three people in this very intimate, intense environment singing directly to another group of people uh, and conveying something quite powerful. I mean, the text of these songs, they, they hover around similar th- sets of themes, usually unrequited love, but wow, I mean, it's, it's often uh, pretty heavy. My only sorrow is that I'm not dead <laughs> is the way one of Akugam's songs begins, right? Uh, if you take that seriously, I mean, if we think they're not joking around, then you have to find some way of conveying that.
1: If you're someone who cares a lot about, say, Beethoven, there are things that you know for certain, what Donald Rumsfeld used to call known knowns. We know that Beethoven wrote nine symphonies, 32 piano sonatas, one not-so-great opera. Although there's always the unlikely chance of a new discovery of a Beethoven piece, we generally have a sense of what Beethoven composed and what he didn't. And having that knowledge be standardized for a couple hundred years, alongside a seamless tradition of performances of Beethoven's music, means that we have been able to devote a lot of time to figuring out what makes a performance of that music sound great, and what it means to bring it to life. But what if the history behind the music that you cared about was not so cut and dry? What if you weren't sure who even composed it, or who performed it, or where it was performed? because it had been confined to dusty archives for many centuries. If you were a scholar of this music, say the polyphonic vocal music of the Renaissance, you would have to dedicate your career to answering much more basic questions. Who composed it and when, who performed it and where? You would create new editions of old manuscripts while puzzling over how to correctly name and date them. You would spend a lot of time debating with your colleagues questions like, was this music written by the famous composer Josquin? Or has it instead been misattributed? For decades, these questions have preoccupied musicologists who study early music, and rightfully so. But as my guest today makes clear, the basic questions of who, what, where, and when don't tell us everything. Because when we get caught up in issues like, say, attribution, who wrote the music, we can miss out on the crucial why question, the reason that the music existed in the first place hundreds of years ago, to be sung and heard in real time. This is Sound Expertise, and I'm your host, Will Robin. Today I'm talking to the musicologist Jesse Rodin, an associate professor at Stanford, who has spent many years trying to bring the music of the Renaissance back to life, not just reconstructing the notes and words of centuries-old manuscripts, but trying to reconstruct the lived experience of the distant past. He has published extensively on this era, leads a vocal ensemble dedicated to this music, and oversees a large-scale initiative called the Joscan Research Project. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. I've been reading some of the work you sent me, and one of the really fascinating papers that you you sent makes use of martial arts manuals and and cookbooks from the 15th century to kind of make some interesting points about music from this period. Why? martial arts manuals and cookbooks to talk about renaissance music
0: so the problem is that we don't have any sources that actually talk about renaissance music Mm. uh, in the way we want and so i was trying to grapple with that problem i mean i think there are good reasons for why we don't um they boil down a little bit to the the sort of unpleasant circumstance that polyphonic music wasn't that important to most people in, mm. in its details. As um, opposed to cooking and as martial was, arts. You which know, kind of, well, right. Mm-hmm. And, and other things like painting that, you know, you would commission and you had to be in the painting. So maybe they're going to have some documents about painting with payment records, but also plans for what needs to be in there and what shouldn't be in there. Whereas with music, the details, maybe it we, we, we know that it needs to happen in some way, but it doesn't matter so much when and where and, and what's in it exactly. Um, so that's that's the problem, mm-hmm. and then the you know it's it's really a kind of um, shot in the dark in a way. But what I'm trying to do is ask the question. How do they think about time-bound experiences, time-bound aesthetic experiences, you know, in, in general? And we have all we have are these these particular kinds of sources which are each in their own genre. A cookbook is a very particular kind of thing, um, as is a martial arts manual. But they begin to get us at least toward the idea that they care about details and they're not embarrassed by them or they're you know, they're not afraid to give you a long, long list of details, of moves, of, you know, recipes with just to do this and then do this and then do this. It sort kind of proves uh, something I think we already knew, but it's nice to to, to see it in various um, places, which is that they, um, they're they willing to go down to the micro, microscopic level and walk you through an experience or what should be a part of an experience. And I think that when you look at the way they compose music, um, they mm. think about composition in a similar way. This is not as is sometimes sometimes characterizes as not a generalized sound bath, but something that's really poignant and 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 uh, vital from moment to moment. So it's sort of the background for the kind of argument I wanna make.
1: And so I mean in a in a way I guess a score is kind of like a cookbook and that it is a set of instructions, right? But what you're feeling is missing from the kind of documentary record in this period is really a sense of how people experienced this this music
0: that's right, that's right. I mean, first of all, the analogy only goes so far right but I Sure, but it is but it's there's something there um, yeah, they don't tell us that what we have in the by way of comments are generally from from outsiders to the practice folks who, who show up lay people who show up and say things about how sweet it sounds, how angelic heavenly voices, which is all very nice, but it's, it's almost useless mm, at the It's level. so
1: generic that it doesn't...
0: Yeah, and then when you get into the styles and the pieces and the genres and you realize that, wow, they're working so hard, the composers are, and presumably the performers are working so hard from second to second, minute to minute, to make these very dramatic, I would say, very um, gripping experiences, and you can see that in the musical language. Um, how do we get access to that?
1: And so who are the kind of main composers that you're engaging with in when you talk about this kind of aesthetic experience that's happening in, in the 15th century?
0: And what are the kind of main genres that they're working in? Yeah, so I mean, the, the most uh, famous composers going sort of one generation to the next are Guillaume Dufay, Johannes Ockeghem, and Josquin Desprez. Those sort of cover the, the long 15th century, mm-hmm. as I would call it. Um, but actually, in, in recent years, I've tried to cast as wide a net as possible, doing a lot of anonymous music and a lot of music by composers whose names aren't as familiar um, across the the major genres, which are polyphonic mass, settings of the, the ordinary of the mass, um, motets, which is a grab bag of a genre that includes all sorts of Latin-texted Latin sacred music, and songs, mm. um, above all, French songs, chansons, which are... Uh, overall, in this period, uh, in in a series of fixed poetic forms that have uh, associated musical forms, um, Rondeau, virelai, and ballade, and so that's those have been the the centers of gravity. But um, in you know recent months, actually, I've been working also on Italian carnival songs and the lauda and all sorts of other um, kinds of music that are being made at right. the time. Yeah, and so
1: I mean a lot of I think musicologists, even musicologists who work on early music, will focus on one composer, or maybe even one book of music, or maybe even just, like, two or three pieces, and you seem to be tackling a lot of different stuff. Like, what is, what is, what do you get out of handling so much different music from this period that you wouldn't get if you just look at A Famous Mass by Josquin or something like that?
0: Well, it's, it's extremely daunting, for one thing, sure. and humbling, because you realize how, how, as a field, I think it's fair to say we're, we're really not there yet. Mm. Um, and that was my feeling writing my Josquin book, actually, that it was just the beginning of wrapping our arms around these styles, thinking about how one composer interacted with other composers in the same institution, how their styles intersect or don't intersect. Um, so, in a way, it's that same question, but uh, in a broader frame. Because I think there are certain stylistic norms that cut across these genres. Um, there's a certain world that they inhabit, I mean, and that world evolves over the decades, of course. But, um, but you can begin to get texture for how it changes, and where and when, and how these individual genres, and sometimes their associated formal schemes, uh, afford possibilities for composers that, that then performers can take advantage of. I'm interested in both sides mm. of that question.
1: And so kind of back, I want to talk more about this big project that you're kind of working on now, but backing up a little bit, like, how did you get into all of this music from a scholarly perspective? Were you someone who sang this music growing up, like how did you kind of immerse yourself in this world and decide you wanted to spend the rest of your life researching it?
0: It's a a great question with a strange answer, um, which is that I didn't grow up with it at all. I grew up with a huge amount of music in my ear and singing a lot of music, even in choral situations, but not with this stuff. And it was very late, really as an undergraduate at UPenn, that I discovered this music. Uh, And it was thanks to some great teachers there, Norman Smith, Lawrence Bernstein, Crystal Collins Judd, um, that I... Was drawn to this repertoire, where it seemed to me at the time, and it still does. That you know, this is the only place where you can go for four voice music, where all four voices are just about equally interesting mm. and, and exciting. Um, and you're part of what this, was your vocal range? A uh, kind of baritone. Okay. Yeah, a little flexible. But. So those are more interesting parts
1: in in this than they might be in other contexts. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Definitely. And just the feeling of being part of this polyphonic web that can at times be very dense and very complex. And at that, at that moment for me, very hard to make sense of. Uh, and it just drew me in through perfor- to concerts. Um, as a freshman, I sang in Aukagum Mass, which mm. was at the time felt almost impossible. Um, but it was a great entree into this, into this stuff. And just through luck of, of studying with some of these, these wonderful people I mentioned, I found myself in a graduate program at Harvard and, and uh, getting deeper and deeper into the world, thanks again to, to other faculty I came into contact with. And as you got
1: deeper, how did you, where did you see the kind of lacuna, the gaps in what, I mean, this is, this being, I think, a huge field, like, you know, this is kind of like at the center of what musicology has been for a very long time, right? right. So it's often, you know, there are all these areas that people like me are working in where it's like, it's wide open, there's, you know,
0: but this is, you know, not, not it's not something that's been under-researched either, Right. Yes, and that also was daunting as I started, and I said, you know, I, want, I think I want to work on Joska and people said, are you crazy? Don't mm. You know, first of all, how nasty it is, but second of all, how, you know, how big the literature is. and How nasty in terms of the battles around yeah. the scholarship already? Yeah, there, there are battles around the scholarship, although at the time I entered, they were dying down a bit, and also, um, I, I think they, they tended to be concentrated around the biography, which at that time was undergoing, you know, massive shifts, and I really was protected from those. In fact, I was really, I felt embraced by the Jalscan community. They were happy to have a younger person working on the stuff. Uh, and, and so, um, y- you know, what I, as I read the literature, what I felt was on the one hand, a sense of awe at how much had been done, how much archival work, how much, you know, uh, work with the sources. You know, we really had, through decades of, of hard, hard work, gotten our arms around so much. But on the other hand, you know, I felt pretty dissatisfied with the discourse around the music. Uh, it felt like it was often kind of either yoked into certain narratives that felt uh, inappropriate for what the music was actually doing, or it just didn't engage at a sufficient level of detail or with sufficient empathy with what, what I saw in, in the pieces, So from at that time, a fairly narrow experience um but over time you know I I found my way to um the writings of certain scholars who I think were doing more of that kind of thing and I I slowly found what I hope was my own voice in that in that picture and so when you talk about
1: engaging with the music I mean a part of it is obviously you know spending a lot of time with these scores but you you also write about this idea of kind of music as as a lived experience what does that kind of mean to you and how does that kind of relate to what what you're trying to do in this
0: in this and your other projects from the very beginning the way I learned this stuff was to was through various means but it it involved listening to recordings on repeat Mm. I would take the commuter rail from Philly back to New York where I lived and I would listen to a Kyrie 12 times before moving on to the Gloria (laughs) crazy stuff um, it involved playing the pieces into finale, you know, pieces that weren't recorded maybe in real time to kind of hear the piece as it build up as I entered the voices, singing it myself, singing from notation, getting together with others, sort of a score study, every method I could find to kind of get into it because it seemed like this was singer's music. This was music that wants to be heard and that has a kind of drive and life to it that um, to some extent I heard in the recordings, but to some extent I felt needed more work. Uh, And so as I began working with Better and Better Singers, I felt like I was beginning to kind of unlock some of the music secrets. And that's a journey that I've been on since the beginning and that I'm very much still on. It feels like actually only in the last year or so has my ensemble, has Cut Circle gotten to a point where we feel like we have um, made real progress in getting closer to what this music can be. How do you, I mean,
1: the kinds of secrets that you are talking about, like what, what's an example of something where you feel like looking at this music on a sheet of paper in a manuscript says one thing, but learning it, like internalizing it as a singer, like what, what does that bring out of it? Yeah. I mean, even a specific example from from the, the kind of music that you're looking
0: at. But. Sure. I mean, there are so many. Um, to, to take a song, you know, we just recorded all of Okugum's songs and one of the most famous, this virulet, Maboucherie, this virile ma boucherie Hmm. uh, is this stunning thing Um, and there are many recordings and some of them are lovely Um, but what we did what I did through this process was try to memorize all the poems first of all and more or less memorize all the music and once you know a lot of songs and once you can kind of pit them one against the other you see where the special moments are and you also start to have ideas about how to work through the forms because these forms involve two musical sections, A and B, and you're going back and forth between A and B with sometimes the same text, sometimes a different text. But the poems are not these static things. And I think that the performance tradition and to some extent the scholarly tradition um, have given the impression that it's kind of like you read the phone book and then it's, and then it's mm. done. Um, and I think uh, someone like Christopher Page has called that view into question. But I think more can be done. And so sometimes in a piece like that, to give a very specific example, there's an A section, which is the end of the first part and ultimately the end of the whole song. And then there's a B section, which is contrasting. And when you get to B, there's a change of mensuration sign, one of these obscure symbols that, that tells you something about the meter, but also the tempo. And that's, the new sign tells you to accelerate. And in all the performances I've heard, almost all the performances I've heard, there's no change of tempo. Interesting. So just by kind of taking on board this basic notational information and singing it that way, you realize that, wow, there's a huge change of character in the poem. And lo and behold, that, is, that comes across with dramatical, dramatic textural change, change of tempo, change of affect. And then when you go back to the A section with new words, it's this, it, the drama is increased because the contrast is that much greater. So this is the kind of thing we're starting to feel mm. like we can, we can get at.
1: So it seems like, in in some sense, the performance tradition was this kind of, like, beautiful wash of sound in which every line is, like, balanced, and you you can hear everything very clearly, but maybe there's not a huge sense of, like, uh, I guess, um, drama through the performance, And, and what you're getting at is almost like, let's treat this like a Schubert song or something, where where like when, when it comes back again it's different and every like every singer knows to do it differently or whatever. Yeah,
0: exactly. And and that you know, and, and that idea opens me up to critiques so, of, you know, you're you're taking a romantic ideology and pasting it on the fifteenth mm. century. But I just I just can't accept that for a minute. I mean this is a period where um, from everything we have, you know, emotions are not something that are hidden. Emotions are out there. Um, and the you know the, the the Anglican choral tradition mixed with sort of some sort of, um, uh, well, some version of Belcanto technique have res- resulted in this sound that uh, really built up by the English choral tradition the 1980s and following, I'd say, that did a lot for us. You know, I don't want to knock that because the Tallis scholars, for example, showed us how shimmeringly beautiful it can be, mm-hmm. how it can be in time and in tune and pristine and you can hear everything. And without that, I don't know that I'd be here at all. Um, but I do think there's this tendency to sort of map on this, generous church acoustic onto a repertory that even sacred, even sacred music was often sung inside chapels in pretty intimate settings, right? Um, the choice of tempo, vo- timbre, vocal technique, uh, all those things come together um, combined with just what we see on the page, I think, to invite a very different reading, one that's much more engaged. If it's a song, we're talking about the words, we are setting it is setting a text, and I think just the sources by themselves indicate that the singers would have had those texts basically memorized in the music, mm. too. So what are the kinds of sources? I mean, besides the
1: scores, what are the sources that help tell you that are kind of driving your direction in terms of how you
0: you interpret this music? So, so some of it is what we don't have, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So we, 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 the more you know about the bel canto technique and its origins, the more you realize that it probably doesn't apply to music this far back. Uh, and so all the things that voice teachers tell you to do, drop the larynx, create all the space, make this rounded sound, uh, chances are low that they would have done that with any regularity in this period. So what happens when you do the other thing and when everything, like the instruments of the time, are is forward and uh, the placement is forward, the larynx is up, it's, you're singing a little bit like we speak. Hmm. And um, suddenly final sonorities ring in the room in this totally different way. Um, when we record, we bring the microphones very close uh, and create an acoustic that, even if it's a church acoustic, uh, is the experience, reflects the experience of someone who's pretty close to the singers. And again, wow, the details snap into place. Rhythmic um, gestures that in one recording or one context might feel kind of limp suddenly scream because the singer is huffing and puffing, maybe in a high part of the range, the tempo is brisk, the phrase moves, and uh, when combined with everything going on in the other voices, it can be, it can be very, very dramatic. So the, the goal you know, is not to have a one setting that we apply to everything. The goal is actually the opposite. It's to have a flexible technique and a flexible approach that tries to honor what we see in terms of the words and the music as it changes across time and across genre. What kind of pushback have you gotten for this? So far, none. But okay. uh, but I have to say that we have um, all the akagam songs are being released this May, and another album of hard masses, anonymous mm-hmm. masses, are being released in September. And it's really here that we're uh, showcasing this new approach. Our, the albums we have out reflect this uh, to, uh, this uh, method to some extent, but it'll be once these albums drop that we that we get the flack we deserve. All right, great. Yeah, <laughs>
1: we'll forward we'll to that, and so. Kind of moving from performance to you're working on this book on form in 15th century music. Yeah. And how does all of this work apply to how you're, I guess, maybe conceptualizing or or reconceptualizing musical form in this period?
0: Yeah, and, and I've been moving away, just so you know, I've been moving away from the word form because okay, it, right, it implies... So nix that. <laughs> no, no, it's quite all right. Um, but it implies a certain... Kind of, it, it's hard to get away from a certain sort of stasis, you see, in the mm. word form or like architectural form or something like that because I'm precisely interested in, in the experiential quality. You know, the question of the book is really how does the music work and how does it work in time? Because I think in the 15th century, composers start thanks to um, features of the style that have coalesced Uh, in the early decades of the 15th century, they have a a new toolbox and they start to create dynamic shapes um, where processes of intensification can happen over several pages, over a 35-minute mass cycle, for example. And again, you know, the performance tradition will either bring that out or not. Up until now, it basically hasn't brought that out. But I think it's right there and you can see it in some some scholarly discussions when when scholars talk about the last unused day of a mass, for example, often being the place where you see the compositional fireworks. That's a great example. Um, how does the composer get there? What's happening not only in the voice that's quoting some chant, but what's happening in all the other voices too? bring the piece to a conclusion. And oftentimes what I see is uh, one form or another of, of hugely contrastive aesthetic, right? It's not always about intensification, but it is about moments of a higher or lower energy level and, and getting between them in really interesting ways.
1: And so, I mean, when I think about form or not form or whatever in, the, in this period, like, you know, in, in, in undergrad, we memorize all these form feaks and it's all the uppercase letters and lowercase letters. <laughs> and it's a... like, you know, you spend... 3 weeks memorizing them and then you forget it forever uh, exactly. and then spend 3 weeks in grad school memorizing them again <laughs> or or you make it your specialty for your entire life <laughs> right, right. um but like that it seems like maybe that those are the lessons that you know are are teaching us how to think and about f- formal structure in this period in a, in a way that doesn't
0: actually serve what the music's doing in some way. Right, exactly. And it's like the example I mentioned before, you know, the getting your A's and B's straight is a pain in the neck by itself. And it's so abstract. And even on the page of a modern right, score, right. it's so abstract. Um, but if you pick up the the song books that we have, and you look at the way they're organized, all of a sudden, that makes it a little bit more real. And then if you, if you think about what it would take to get from those books to a performance, and you realize, I'm actually going to have to memorize more or less all of this because it's just the information isn't laid out in a way that invites sight reading. I have the words I have to sing that don't fit under the notes. then that'll in turn, you know, raises questions about what's the performance situation like? Well, wait a minute, maybe we have these three people in this very intimate, intense environment singing directly to another group of people uh, and conveying something quite powerful. I mean, the text of these songs, they they hover around similar sets of themes, usually unrequited love, but wow, I mean it's it's often Uh, pretty heavy. My only sorrow is that I'm not dead. (laughs) Is the way one of Akugam's songs begins, right? Uh, If you take that seriously, I mean, if we think they're not joking around, then you have to find some way of conveying that. And I don't think that the only way is a way that is familiar from 19th century, uh, you know, ideology. I think there are ways that that we can find that are intrinsic to this style in this period, even if we can never be sure. I see. And it's, I suppose shaping
1: all of this has been the Joscan Research Project in a way. So what, what is the Josquin Research Project and how did you kind of develop this?
0: Yeah, so it's it's um, the Josquin Research Project is a digital platform, a tool for uh, exploring a large corpus of music from the long 15th century. So we curate uh, thousands of scores that are fully searchable. You can search for melodic or rhythmic or intervallic patterns. And um, you can also run analyses on individual works or on whole, whole uh, corpora. Um, you could think about dissonance treatment or rhythmic activity or ranges um, on a broad scale. And so for me, it's, it's been an incredibly useful uh, tool, but just one tool of many. Um, but it allows me sometimes to ask a question of a, of a whole corpus of pieces, a whole group of pieces. Um, is this thing that I'm looking at right here that I think is special, is it actually special? Does it happen anywhere else? Right, right. Um, so it's the, it's the constant forest and trees problem that with music is so very difficult because in order to have control over that, you need to know a vast amount of music. And um, you can't just flip through scores and know them, not, e- not even a little. You can, you can answer one very small question that way, but if you want to have the pieces under your belt, you more or less have to spend lots of time with them. So I do all of that as many of my colleagues, but this, this tool lets you reach even deep, deeper or mm-hmm. ask different kinds of questions of a larger corpus of pieces.
1: And so it's almost, I mean, it seems like what you're, again, like the Schubert analogy, like there are a hundred and blah, 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 Haydn symphonies. And so, but everyone, like you can look at one and tell if a minuet is weird or not. Right. And that's because everyone knows that music, even if they don't know all 104, four, um, mm-hmm. they at least can like slice into it and kind of like know the structure. It's not a form I know the structure of uh, a theme and variations and then say, Haydn's doing something weird here or, like, or this is like the most straightforward version of it and but we didn't have that, really, for this period, and is that, is that kind of what you're I think that's right. Yeah. I think
0: we don't have that. I think individuals among us have that for slices of the repertoire. Mm. I'm one of those people. But, but I think that um, having that sense of the whole is really challenging when just getting to the point where we can perform it plausibly at all took so much so much work. Uh, we, there are tons of music that's not recorded, that's in editions that are... Well, some that's not edited at all, others that are in editions that are hard to work with. Um, one of the things the Josscan Research Project does is present all the music in the same format. We use unreduced note values, which means the note shapes you see on the page are one-to-one with the ones in the manuscript. I see. And, and that means that while there's a, you know, a a one-week learning curve to get used to the idea that the whole note gets the beat once you're over that you can compare everything and it's apples and apples. So again, you know, trying to sort of cast a, you know, a wide net and um, take in a lot of different kinds of music and to get your arms around it. That's still the goal for the discipline that we haven't reached. And I mean, you so you amass all this data. I mean, it seems
1: I guess it makes sense where there's like you're dealing with the kind of like the big data thing but also the big data is what yields like makes the individual piece more interesting or compelling or you can like figure out what the indi- what's going on at the individual
0: level too right that's right and and to be honest with you mo- most of those observations that i make come from my own experience not from the digital tool right it's but not the, like
1: you're you're like have some equation that tells you what pieces yeah
0: exactly on the contrary i think that the digital tool and i say this a lot can be misused you know you can find something that's a false positive you can make terrible interpretations based on it if you want to. Um, no, you have to also take the time to learn the repertory. It's, but it is a powerful uh, tool to, to add to what you already know, to cause you to ask questions you didn't even know you had, um, to point out things that, that probably the composers didn't know were there. Um, you know, If you ask Josquin, so do you use more of ascending, passing tones of this kind hmm. or of that kind, um, You know, once you got around the conceptual issues, I, he might not know. Um, or do you use more passing tones than La Rue? <laughs> Are you kidding? But if we can know the answers to those questions, we can start to separate composers and styles. Yes, it's useful for questions of attribution, but it's useful for all sorts of other questions about style that, that orbit around those. So, I mean, for folks not super familiar with Josquin as a figure and in
1: kind of the history of this, I mean, attribution has always been a, a core question, right? Like, Is this piece by Joskin? Is this piece by the Joskin? Is there a the Joskin? Like, can you kind of break down that history of of that issue and how the Joskin research project might help with it or not deal with it at all? Or,
0: yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a problem because Josquin was so famous for so long. He's more or less the first composer whose fame outlasts his death by a long time. And also the composer who reached the height of, of his fame right at the moment when music printing, polyphonic music printing, takes off. So he's in the right place at the right time and benefits from this in all sorts of ways. But it, it creates big problems down the road. So there are more than 300 pieces attributed to him. And if you kind of take a hard-nosed musicological view where I say, all right, well, I need sources that have a piece with his name on it from his lifetime. Sure. And I have hopefully multiple sources that seem independent from one another that both have his name on. It. If that's my corpus of absolutely secure pieces, pieces where we're as sure as we can be, um, then the problem is that you have 50-something of those... And more than 300 in total. Everything else, okay, um, Yeah. And the and the Josquin community has wrestled with this over a long period. Um, oftentimes, by just sort of trying to knock one or one, one piece out of the canon, um, it turns out this piece we thought was Josquin isn't. Right. Um, which has been useful, but a little you know the process has been a little bit piecemeal. Um, meanwhile, you know research has proceeded at pace, and there are new findings uh, all the time that actually help us. Get our get our arms around it. I think overall, actually, the problem isn't as bad as it's made out to be. We have this core corpus of solid pieces. There's a there's a corpus that hovers on top of that. That's pretty good. That's you know we can feel pretty good about. Then there are a whole lot that don't have a prayer. You know that are published way after his death, uh, in one peripheral source, uh, or maybe a kind of piece that's attributed to another composer in many sources and just can't just once, kind of by accident. You can rule a lot out that way. And so when you get down to it, there are definitely probably a few dozen hard cases, um, but it's not this um, horrible monster that it's Mm. sometimes made out to be. And indeed, we can develop on the basis of the secure pieces a very clear, or at least a very uh, sophisticated view of, of Josquin's style, which again, I think is getting better all the time, as we're able to say a little bit more about how his style changes over time and the different places he worked. And I think now we're at a point where this question is, course not answerable, it never will be, but where we can do pretty well and where we can can put forward a fairly coherent picture of the composer and his music and also where we can tell a pretty interesting story about his posthumous reception because the view that the 16th century, the mid-16th century had of Josquin is not the same as the historical Josquin. Their view is already very skewed in interesting ways um, and both of those are worth our time. How does all of this
1: work both the kind of assembly uh, of resources like the Joskin Research Project, but also kind of how you're reconceptualizing this music, shape how you teach this music, and, and kind of what your dialogues have been with your students around, around
0: this. Yeah, I think, I think one thing is that I try as much as possible to bring the students in. I remember the feeling as a student, and it wasn't the fault of my professors, it was sort of the fault of the literature and the way the scholarship works in general, the feeling of it being so hard and so far away. How can I ever master this? Where do you even begin? Right, you listen
1: um, to things, you like memorize some facts, but you like don't get to immerse yourself. Yeah.
0: What does Bruss BR9126 mean? Mm. You know. And so, as much as possible, I try to um, demystify and clarify. Um, and increasingly, what I what I have done is um, take the approach of having them actually make music. You know, when I teach notation, we sing. That's our main activity. We sing and then we extract the rules from what we've done. But if you start with something you know, it's a whole lot easier to master the rule than if you're mastering it in the abstract and then trying to apply it to a piece you still don't really know. Uh, and so that approach has has overall been, been very you know, satisfying. Um, I'm also trying in my courses to to broaden outward, to embrace as much of the kind of 15th century experience as possible. Um, so we, we just did a concert where we were lucky enough to sing directly from a 15th century Florentine chant book. Oh, wow. And we made the, the theme of the concert Florence itself. So we sang carnival songs and laude and all these pieces, all this music that would have been sung in the streets of Florence and in sacred spaces and beyond. Um, Last uh, term, I taught a, a really wild course, which is about medieval feasting, where we meet in the Stanford farm and we cook medieval recipes every week. <gasps> you said Stanford
1: farm, and that didn't quite register. Yeah, with yeah. Me. It's an place, actual farm. There's okay. a place
0: in the world known as the Stanford Educational okay. Farm. That already is yeah. wild. It is California, but uh, it's a wonderful place. And they opened our, their doors to us. They have a wood fired oven and a seminar room. And we got funding we have a for ingredients, That's exactly. great. Yeah, Okay, and so and they teach real courses there. But um, yeah, we 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 cook the recipes, we uh, interpret the the documents. The students do presentations on ingredients and where they come from. We talk about music, but we also talk about visual culture, poetry, politics, gender. I mean, you can't escape these issues. Um, and, and so it, you actually start to get quite a lot. It's a Feasting is, is an area where, you know, it's, it's multidisciplinary no matter what, whether you like it or not. And so we hear from food historians, art historians, wow. uh, all different sorts of people, and even take the course up into the present because we have to deal with what it means to cook today, issues of sustainability in the environment. Mm. Um, but no, the thrust of the course is in the Middle Ages, and, and the core are three 14th and 15th century cookbooks that are these fascinating documents where they start to tell you things like, uh, you know, stir for as long as it takes to say three Hail Marys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and what does that tell us about, you know, how
0: they think about the passage of time and what their worldview is and you know, how do we, you know, so that, that has been incredibly fun. And also just to realize, like the music, that the food's great. Food's delicious. I wouldn't uh, have known. I uses, mean, what are you what are yeah. you eating? Like, we're, well, we What are we not eating? We're eating pheasant, partridge, <laughs> okay. goose. You know, we're, we're all right. You know, we're, we're making all sorts. It was the great age of game birds, uh, among other things. We're vegetables. We're doing all sorts of things. But um, the techniques are, on the one hand, not as foreign as you might think. You know, the idea that the sauce is invented much much later is nonsense. There are okay. sauces all over this stuff. Um, but on the other hand, they use spices, for example, that are totally foreign in a place like France today. You know, they're using galangal and and mace and grains of paradise uh, and which they're getting through the spice trade. So,
1: well, I mean, like how does something like that, you know, I guess realizing that cooking is more vibrant than we think it is. I mean, it's like maybe it's almost like too much of a parallel with music. The music was more vibrant, but like where do you get the students kind of thinking about where the, where the intersections are there?
0: I don't push the point, but I think we, mm-hmm. we end up finding parallels. You know, when we, when we talk about moving from a music manuscript to a performance, you know, you, you can't avoid to some extent the analogy. It's not a perfect analogy, but you can't avoid the analogy to some extent because they've been spending their whole, you know, week after week reading these recipes that are usually just three or four lines long. Do this and then do this and then do this. And it assumes a lot because it's written for professional cooks. It's not written for somebody who's never right, been in the kitchen right, before. Right. Um, so they don't give you quantities, basically. They, you know, they, they they really rely on your practical knowledge that's already in your hands. And I think to some extent the musical sources are the same. You know, we have the notes and the rhythms and the words, but it does rely on a practical knowledge of what it's like to sing the stuff that you can only get by doing it quite a lot. Uh, and by having grown up in a world where chant is something that's happening all the time, where non-notated polyphony is something you've learned to do as a kid. Right. Um, if you have that baseline it's, it's not so impenetrable.
1: Great. Well thank you. this was a really fascinating cool. conversation thank I appreciate you. Yeah. it Many thanks to Jesse Roden for that great talk. I encourage you to check out the Joscan research project at joscan.stanford.edu and the music of his ensemble cut circle. Information on that and more is available on our show notes over at soundexpertise.org. I'll be tweeting about today's episode as Seated Ovation. And if you like how we sound, check out my producer D. Edward Davis's work on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. Please subscribe to Sound Expertise on your platform of choice, and we'll see you next week for a talk with a guest I'm really, really excited about, the composer and musicologist George Lewis. Bye.